The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Hi, this is Toby. This is a pre-intro intro to the Gone by Lunchtime podcast. Lots of podcasts happening at the moment. I just want to point out before we get into it in this conversation with Richard Adams that we recorded this one on Wednesday, July the 13th. And by the time you're listening to it, some events in, in relation to the Tory leadership race will have played out. So it's not like we weren't paying attention. Roll tape. Tēnā koutou katoa, welcome to a special pop-up, one-off episode of Gone By Lunchtime. My name is Toby Manha and I've got a special guest today, Richard Adams, who uh, is the education editor at The Guardian. I worked with him there some years ago. Before that, he was at the Financial Times. He's also spent time in the United States working for The Guardian. And he's just landed, he's just landed in Auckland to visit New Zealand. He is a New Zealander for a few weeks. Did you get any sleep overnight, Richard? Welcome. Uh, Cura. Uh, yes, I did, uh, surprisingly. Uh, yeah, we arrived about midnight last night and uh, feeling relatively normal, although that may not last. You and the family are going to career off down the North Island to, did you say Waitomo? Yes, it's a, it's a very popular tourist destination, I oh, believe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then a, a small town called Rotorua, which I believe is also uh, some of your readers may Love be aware it. of. And then um, the capital city of New Zealand is called Wellington, and that is uh, interesting in diversity. So we're going to spend a couple of weeks there. It's great to see you um, and have you, see you back here home. Um, the, how long have you been away from Aotearoa now? Uh, I came. I came back in October 2020, uh, which was super spooky because, obviously, I flew. It was you know the early scary part of COVID. Uh, the UK was in various lockdowns, mm. and I spent two weeks in uh, the Novotel in Christchurch Airport car park. Um, of which I have fond That's memories. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. and then and then I got out, and everything you know suddenly it was like COVID had never happened because life was normal and no masks and nothing. And then I went back to the UK, and it was back into lockdown. And this time it's the reverse. I've come from because everybody is over it in the UK, and hmm. nobody really wears masks anymore, or and there's no precautions or or anything, and. Uh, and life has pretty much returned to normal and everyone's ignoring it. And then I come back here and, of course, it's, it's, a, it's a real thing and then masks are mm. worn and 
you know, there are still some precautions taken. So it's kind of the reverse of the last time I was here. It's, it's sort of, I mean, we're not going to do a COVID podcast, I don't think, but it's, it's, it's as if a lot of people are over it, but it's not really over us. <laughs> Certainly right. in New Zealand, yeah. Yeah. you look at some of the numbers, the hospitalization yeah. rates yeah. and so on. Yeah. I guess the difference in the UK is that by contrast to those, that awful period, how long was it in total? Sort of 15 months, 18 yeah, months or something. at least 18 months. Where it was just horrible. Yeah. It's only, it's, you know, it's only, uh, New Zealand is where the UK was six months ago. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're going to talk today a bit about the political events that have <laughs> happened in the UK, the extraordinary political events, um, and we might touch on a bunch of other things. We'll see where the conversation leads us. I want to shout out to Spinoff members. You're a Spinoff member, aren't you? I am. Richard? Yeah. Um, who uh, make these sorts of things possible. And thanks to TI here for uh, making this sound passable and beautiful, even. The last few weeks in the UK have been amazing and a lot of people who play a passing interest suddenly played quite a focused interest <laughs> on this. You know, there's often been a pantomime quality around parts, things to do with Boris and things to do with British politics in general, but this just seemed like an, ex- an extraordinary episode, the climax of an extraordinary leadership. What was it? You, you're, you're education focused, but mm. you must have been watching it partly professionally and partly just as a resident of the United Kingdom, with your jaw on the floor. Right. And, and it's been, I mean, obviously, the, the, uh, since 2016 in the UK, politics in the UK has been up and down and all over the place because we've had a variety of events, most of which will be familiar uh, to uh, everyone. Uh, but the last few months have been even like all that on speed because we've had yeah. there's a period of domestic politics where we had the I mean, apart from the war in Ukraine which was not obviously a domestic politics issue but you go back to where there was a situation with a conservative MP called Owen Patterson who was found to have broken various rules and he should have been suspended as an MP for 30 days. Mm. That was that was what's going to happen. This is going back about a year or so, yeah. is it? Well, yeah, well, it's not even that long. Yeah. Um, and this is the beginning. This is the root of everything. The beginning of the end for Boris Johnson. Right, and, and, and it's been a succession of stumbles ever since. Yeah. And Patterson, it was during the COP26, mm. uh, Boris Johnson left the, the conference in Edinburgh, flew to London, held a private dinner, and then tried to lobby MPs to let Patterson off the hook. Uh, and that failed, and it ended up with Patterson resigning. That triggered a by-election, which the Conservatives lost. Hmm. And there's just been a cascade of bad news. And he didn't just try, he tried to change the rules so that Patterson yeah, could yeah, stay. Yeah, tr- he tried to change just... the rules, so the, it was... So we saw this sort of succession of things, and this was the same with what they call Partygate, which is the allegations that turned out to be true and then worse than everybody even knew about the various parties that had happened in Downing Street and around Boris Johnson while the rest of the UK was in um, COVID lockdown. And that was a source of deep unpleasantness. But... Uh, and and that was the real uh, turning point for Boris. And that had an impact. It seemed to me watching from different d- distance because it wasn't couldn't be couldn't be played as palace politics because it was for a lot of people who had made 
huge sacrifices. Right. The sorts of people who had switched their vote to Boris because of Brexit, which we, we might get onto in a moment, for for a range of other reasons. And th- think of you know the lovable rogue, all that sort of thing. Suddenly, right. it was personal, right? Yes. So uh, there, there was a uh, a lot of feeling uh, that people who people had made lots of sacrifices, some more than others. People who'd postponed weddings, people who'd been able, unable to attend funerals of their, you know, their parents or their family members, at the same time hmm. as Boris Johnson was having birthday parties of, of you know various amounts, uh, hmm. um, and uh, wine time Friday, where and they bought a fridge where they could put the wine in. I, I mean, I remember at one point we were and we were walking around in Oxford in April. Uh, and we had bought some ice creams, and we sat down on a park bench in a graveyard, mm. and some police drove past, stopped, got out, and told us we couldn't sit down on the park bench yeah. because yeah. of COVID yeah. outside. Yeah. At, this, at the very same time, uh, Boris Johnson was hosting wine and cheese parties mm. at you know, number 10 Downing Street. So it wasn't like they didn't know what the rules were. They just, at some point, gave up thinking that they would be applied to them. So Partygate kept rolling and rolling. There was a, you know, a new story seemingly every week from all sorts of different quarters. The Sue Gray report, which is uh, Boris sort of tried to kick it away every time he was asked about it, we need to wait for the Sue Gray report, mm-hmm. um, came in. There were various uh, findings, and the police, the Met, ended up fining Boris yep. Johnson. Just for one, or was it two? I think just, just for one. It was just one. But that was kind of symbolically powerful enough. The, the police had to be had to be almost bullied into mm. actually conducting an investigation. The Metropolitan Police wouldn't open an investigation. It was only a lot of pressure and mm. a lot of controversy, and eventually they did. And Cressida Dick, who was the commissioner over the top of that, is, is now gone, of course, or, or soon to go. And and, and that build-up happened, and he sort of kept clinging on, and then it kept going and going. And then eventually we ended up, after I think two more by-elections went disastrously. Which were only three weeks ago. Was that right? Yeah. Well, we ended up, well, it was, it was, it was just over a month ago. I mean, maybe yeah. there, there were previous by-elections. It was over a month ago. There was a confidence vote, which has that kind of wonderful kind of procedural element to it where you needed to get, I think, whatever the percentages of the number of MPs. I think it was had to be 54 MPs, was it, or something like that? Yeah, certain, you had to, it was, had to be, I think 10% of the parliamentary conservative party yep. had to submit letters calling for a vote yes, yes. in confidence in the the party leader, so not as prime minister, but as leader right, of the party. Yeah, um, and that's to the 1922-22 committee, and eventually that happened, that, that was tipped, and then there was a confidence vote, and it was, will this be it? But he survived... I was going to say a whisker, probably slightly more than that, like kind of by about 70 or 80. It's a very big parliamentary party, or caucus, as we would call it in, in New Zealand, because of the size of the majority they got. He, he hung on, and one of, the, one of the quirks of the rules that have been designed to avoid a constantly coup-frothing <laughs> situation in the party is that if you survive, you win this kind of immunity shell is the idea, right? That's right, for that, a year. That you for get a year. year. You, can't be, you can't be have another uh, vote of no confidence for a year. And so in one sense, it was like he's done it again. He's managed to kind of slip his way. The, what does what, what Cameron called him? The, 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 what is it? The, 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 the piglet, the greased piglet. Right. Had managed to squeeze his way out once again. But... 
Of course, it's more complex than that. And Theresa May found after she survived a vote, then she had a much slimmer majority, but she ended up going a relative short time after a survi- surviving or winning a confidence vote. And the same happened. Then that br- that brings us up to two or three weeks ago. Right. And then what, what played out? Well, so then... Uh so Boris Johnson won the first uh, confidence vote for the 1922 committee, mainly because all of the, what they call the payroll roll vote was uh, all the ministers and permanent private secretaries and all those huh. people voted for him. And he, but he lost on the sort of normal MP vote. Yeah. So the sort of MPs who weren't ministers, the majorities of those voted against him. Those who didn't sort of owe their jobs to his Right, largesse. exactly. And what happened subsequently uh, as a result of... Uh, uh, the, the latest situation, which was you had an MP who turned out to be sexually assaulting people, and yeah. this was well known, and yeah. it was known to to Boris himself, even though he denied it. Um, that was enough to trigger the the payroll vote for vote to desert him. Uh-huh. So you had people like Rishi Sunak, the yeah. Chancellor, yeah. resigning, and then there was this extraordinary couple of days last week. Yeah. Um, uh, Monday and Tuesday of just this uh, Tuesday and Wednesday of just the succession of ministers resigning, yeah, and then eventually even even for Boris tried everything, uh, and uh, finally he just he ran out of road, uh, and that was and then that was it, and then he resigned. It was that amazing. Situ- I mean, it was it was it was almost it was it was it reached fast level, didn't it? When you it had really did. People that he had appointed to senior positions to replace people who had resigned, then saying right. that he had to go, or even you know, in so effect, issuing their own resignation. There's one point: the, the Department for Education, uh, yeah. which is obviously the area I, I cover. And at one point, they had no ministers mm. at all, uh, or, or or parliamentary undersecretaries. They had one minister who was in the House of Lords, and they don't resign in these situations. But mm. uh, so he had the Secretary of State for Education, Nadim Zahawi, had been promoted to become Chancellor because Rishi Sunak had um, had had resigned. Uh, Boris then promoted another Education Minister, Michelle Donlan, to become uh, Secretary of State for Education. And then 35 hours after she was appointed, she resigned, citing lack of confidence in mm. Boris Johnson. Mm. The other junior ministers in the department all resigned. So we had a situation where there were no ministers at all mm. in a department. Mm. Yeah, so it was it was ludicrous. It was becoming absolutely absurd. And the government was ceasing to function. The parliament couldn't function because ministers couldn't appear mm. to discuss things or bills that were going through parliament. In the case of education, um, there are a whole bunch of schools that have a contractual relationship with the Department for Education where decisions can only be made by ministers. Right. So literally the state was ceasing to function until eventually even Boris realized that their end was up. But we saw the same pattern. So all these things would happen. We saw the same thing. There'd be an allegation made, whether it was parties or sexual harassment or, or wallpaper, Downing Street, mm. or all sorts of things. And this is the same case. The first thing would be a flat denial. Mm. Number 10 would just deny it. And then there'd be some evidence produced. And then the denials would still be made, but the language would be very carefully constructed. Boris Johnson wasn't aware of this or that the government hadn't heard this allegation mm, mm. or that because it was a government run by journalists, they were they had 
very journalistic priorities. One was to produce something that could be that could fill pages in the following day's newspapers or broadcasts. So they come out with initiatives. They just announced stuff, mm. even though it wasn't going to happen. You know, they announced an education policy that 90% of primary school children were going to pass a certain level of maths and English uh, by 2030. Well, 2030, you know, Nobody involved in the government now will probably be involved in 2030. Mm. It's, it's, you know, but they announced it, and so that was on the front pages, and they were you know, looking good. But without actually, there was no funding, there were no policies attached to this. It was just an announcement. Um, and then again, the denials, because journalists you know, look for responses to allegations, and Boris Johnson's position was you just deny it. You just keep denying it until somebody can actually prove something and then you deny it, then you admit that mm. but deny everything else. Mm. And that just erodes your position. And you had the situation where the, the special advisors for number 10 were just having to lie and were then having to apologise to journalists for lying to them, which was a crazy situation yeah. because they are also civil servants and they're also bound by civil service codes. It's interesting that you say that as a government of journalists because obviously Boris Johnson is the... The exemplar of that, insofar as you know, he was a well-known columnist. He was a former Times reporter. He got sacked from that job by Max Hastings, did he? If I recall, uh, I think Max Hastings might have sacked him for another job. Okay, but, yeah. but um, Max Hastings' columns on Boris over the years are just incredible, excoriating things to read. Yes. But then he was the editor of the Spectator, and famously, he would at the Spectator pop into the office a couple of times a week. I mean. Uh, I don't know that we should tar all journalists with the same brush as him, but it is this sense that, as you say, is like a prime ministership in headlines. You know, the whole thing, they're just not a details guy. And so we had these two massive headlines over the course of his premiership, which, by the way, isn't finished yet. Um, He's he's, he's going to stand down, so he says, but there are enough people who, for for, not without some total reason, have kind of slightly conspiracy-level suspicions that he hopes that he might be able to hang on still. But there was was Brexit, which was the big thing. And then there was COVID that came along, and another massive thing. And, you know, get... Got Brexit, Brexit done. Make Brexit done. Get make Brexit happen. Got Brexit. That was that was it. It was a big sweep. The de- you know the details about Northern Ireland were were never really addressed. Still, still remain a big big challenge. Um, beyond that, those are massive things. It's amazing to think he's only been there three years. It seems like forever in some sense. You know, because, I think because of those years, new really. events. I mean, and, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And um, but beyond that. It seemed like there wasn't really a plan, or at least that was one of the criticisms that was levelled, and at a certain point his own party must have seen that, that there didn't seem... All, I mean, what I heard from distance, people keep on talking about levelling up, which I still don't really understand. This whole levelling up thing seems like something that's made up out of Yes Minister or Well, it's or a great headline. It. It's a great headline. It's a great slogan. Yeah. It's a great headline. And again, the problem with government run by journalists, and, and a very large number of MPs and ministers of the Conservative Party come from journalistic backgrounds right. or, or PR or marketing backgrounds. Yeah. So, for example, Michelle Donlan, who I mentioned, who was for 36, 35 hours, the Secretary of State for Education, uh. Uh, she used to work in marketing in the US for World Wrestling Entertainment. <laughs> uh, so, uh, <laughs> but there are a very large, if you look at the MPs, where they started off, they often started off in marketing, uh-huh. PR, advertising. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, sales or those sorts of things of conservative MPs, and that's a big change. I mean, that's so that's you know, uh, you know, famously the Conservative Party used to be like lawyers and mm. soldiers and you know the sort of professional classes as opposed to Labour. But 
Um, that's now changed. And Labour is now the party in the UK is the party of the lawyers and the teachers and the you know uh, the sort of middle class professionals. Whereas the Conservatives, certainly based on their MPs' backgrounds, are much more yeah marketing based. I think. Interesting within that the whole Dominic Cummings episode, which was one of many scandals that at times seemed massive and sort of barely got mentioned in the in the in the in the in the latest chaos. But of course he breached COVID rules and right. he was an, an extraordinary figure who was involved in the Brexit campaign and a sort of this Svengali character who had all these um, unorthodox approaches and sort of thought of himself as a bit of a super genius, still does, you know, and, and is quite compelling. But was he able to gain that foothold, incredible con- level of control that makes Alistair Campbell for Blair seem <laughs> relatively minimal because they were susceptible to that kind of, were they, they, were, they were awestruck by it? What happened? Well, so I've known Dominic for a number of years because he was special advisor to Michael Gove when Michael Gove was the Secretary of State for Education. Uh-huh. Uh, and David Cameron, when he was Prime Minister, tried to block Cummings' appointment. Cummings was regarded as a dangerous character. Yeah. Uh, in fact, he is a much more attractive character inside the Conservative Party for lots of interesting reasons. One is that the Conservative Party, like lots of modern centre-right parties, are very much enthrall to the Republican Party in the United States. Mm. The Republican Party in the United States is seen as, in this sort of Anglo-Saxon democracies, the great success story. Still today or yes, historically? Yes, yes, really? yes. Right. I mean, we're talking about, I'm talking about the last 10 to 20 years. Okay. You know, it's it's remarkable position of dominance uh, that it's managed to take what I think on the face of it are very unpopular policies and make them palatable. Mm. And to be electorally successful, generally speaking, uh, and also that the the people who support the, the Republican Party of the United States are very wealthy people who also tend to support other causes and centre right and further right organisations in other parts of the world. Hmm. So a lot of think tanks in the UK, for example, are funded by the same people who fund the Republican Party in the US. Uh, and that's all on the record. I don't think it's being it's particularly conspiracy theorist. Now, the problem is the the right and those people have very narrow policy objectives, and they are they tend to be religiously conservative. They tend to be opposed to abortion. They tend to be opposed to you know trans and gay rights, uh, and they tend to be in favour of lower taxes generally. Mm. Uh, and the trouble is those are quite narrow and not actually particularly helpful from a domestic point of view. And you'll see the National Party in this country have the same problems. So they have wealthy American and American-related backers who want to fund these sorts of things. But these are not fantastic policy ideas. Cummings, and the reason why Dominic Cummings is interesting here is he comes along and he has a policy agenda which is not connected to any of these, the, the transatlantic uh-huh. rich think tank uh-huh. world. He's actually got a British-based alternative that he can offer you, and that makes him much more attractive. So he wouldn't, you know, he didn't think banging on about abortion, uh, the things that the American think tanks are really keen on, um, was very useful in in a British political context. So that's why he offered a real alternative to conservatives, so some other policies that they could work on uh, that weren't this really narrow transatlantic you know, unpalatable stuff. Uh, and that's why he was, you know, 
successful within the Conservative Party. But once he got into number 10, he wielded an extraordinary amount of power, didn't yes. he? For an yes. unelected yeah. <laughs> official. Yeah. Well, because Boris Johnson was not particularly interested in details, yeah. uh, and he was trusted by Johnson and by Gove, uh, who was a you know, key, Michael Gove is a key supporter of Boris Johnson. Uh, and so they placed him, and they had a wide distrust of the existing civil service. Yes. And the other policy options that they were being offered, like I say, were these sort of stale, reheated American-style, okay. you know, right-wing stuff. And he comes along and he's talking about the, the levelling up uh, agenda, which you say is a great slogan. What does that actually mean? Well, it means you're pushing government funding away from the southeast of England to the, to the, the north uh, of England, uh, the northeast mm-hmm. of England, where um, income levels are a lot lower, educational outcomes are a lot worse, uh, life expectancy is lower. And these are seats in areas that have traditionally supported Labour. Yeah. Uh, and that suddenly in the last election... The Many cons- of them the Red Wall. Right. So the Red Wall was a terrible phrase, but uh, it was, you know, uh, northern Labour-supporting seats for, yeah. for many years. Uh, and suddenly the Conservatives who had this landslide election, they won a lot of seats they didn't expect. And what happens in those situations is you you start winning in places that you really weren't counting mm. on. Mm. And so as a result, you start getting some slightly unusual candidates who you didn't think would win elections suddenly mm. become MPs. Mm. Uh, and that's a problem. But mm. um, And we've seen that play out a couple of times recently. Um, so the idea was they were capitalised on this. So there had been this historic... Uh, um, reformation of British politics mm. that that Brexit had allowed, that Brexit cut across party lines, uh, and that, that Cummings's idea was that the Conservatives should capitalise on this, and they should have policies that are more attractive to the north of England rather than to the traditional support base in the south uh, of England. And to bring that back to Boris Johnson. By winning that red wall, that historic victory, he gained a mandate. Well, as he saw it, he gained a mandate. And yeah. that's what played out, notwithstanding his own, I think, probably kind of pathological levels of uh, Boris exceptionalism and all of that, seized on the idea all the way through, and especially in these last few months, that he was the one who had been voted into power, that it was all about him. He got Brexit done. He'd been given a mandate by the British people and it was somehow insurrectional or inappropriate or unethical or wrong for the MPs, who were actually the ones that were elected, mm. to be thinking about defenestrating him. Like that he even even in that speech he gave. Yes, even in his resignation street. Yeah. Not a not a not an iota of contrition. No. Nope. Uh, the, the idea that it was eccentric of his colleagues, I yep. think were his words. Yep. Uh, he still doesn't he still seems to believe that. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I had to fathom his psychological state, uh, but you know, I mean, it's it's odd. I mean, not that long ago, he was elected to this massive majority. Now, yeah. now the UK doesn't have a presidential system, although, but it does. Like here, there's a lot of focus on the yeah. political yeah. party leaders. Yeah. Um, so you know, although you know, people say, well, it's not a presidency, so Boris Johnson is somehow giving himself is that he doesn't deserve. Mm. But there is so much concentration on the personality of leaders, especially in the last election. Because you had Jeremy Corbyn, who's leader of the Labour Party, who was widely distrusted by large sections of the the community, the community, I mean the electorate, uh, but including 
traditional Labour Party supporters. Yeah. So one of the reasons why Boris did very well is that Labour had a particularly weak position. Um, and, you know, that's not going to happen again. Yeah. Uh, well, it's... Uh, we, it is a great, great campaigner, Boris Johnson as well. We're very good at. We've talked about the slogans. I, I watched the. I watched PMQs, the Prime Minister's Question Time, the sort of rough equivalent of what we call Question Time in Parliament here. Right. On the, the the sort of in, in that period of the thirty six hours or forty eight hours or whatever it is, and under questioning from Keir Starmer, who again we might talk about it in a, briefly in a minute. Um, he his response to these sort of devastating. Unanswerable questions was well. You 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 would have had the member for Islington North, aka yeah, uh, aka Jeremy Corbyn. He was yeah. still trying to use Jeremy Corbyn yes. as uh, a club with which to beat. You know that yeah. that's what he was left with. You know, um, and one of the resignation, one of the many resignation letters that Boris Johnson received was one from Nadim Zahawi, who was resigning uh, as Chancellor. No, he wasn't resigning as Chancellor. He was saying, threatening to resign as Chancellor of the Exchequer. He was saying you should go. Uh, he's saying you should go after being Chancellor for ten um, minutes. But in his in his letter, which was on government notepaper, he listed Boris Johnson's achievements, and one of them was the defeat of a dangerous anti-Semite, who right. he didn't name, but presumably was Jeremy right. Corbyn. Yeah. Uh, I think Jeremy Corbyn had a very clear case for libel there. He should probably talk to lawyers. But uh, so yeah, so the 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 sort of very quick rewriting of history yeah. for uh, Boris Johnson as yes, he was the only one who stood between Britain and Jerry Corbyn, which is hard to imagine. And and one of the reasons I think that it was seemed was sort of disorganised. There was no there was no there was no real coup attempt, right? Like I mean, and was because there was no obvious successor. Uh, there was no there was no one person who was really driving. I want to I want to replace. Boris Johnson, and that has been made clear, if it wasn't already, by the the early stages of the race to succeed right, Boris right, Johnson. Right. That we had, you know, I think I think overnight you you may not be up to speed on this because you've been on an aeroplane for thirty hours, but it's whittled down to eight now. Right, I think, I've seen that. Yeah, I have seen that. And the way the process works is that the the parliamentary uh, Conservative Party, what we would call the caucus, the MPs, vote, and they've set. A twenty threshold this time. I think that's the point at which we're talking on uh, Wednesday, the thirteenth of July. This podcast won't go out for a few days, so 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 things will have advanced by the time people are listening to this. Um, but you have quite a wide field in many ways, yeah. uh, and th th that that number will be whittled down, I should say, to two, and then the membership of the Conservative Party will choose not just the leader of the Conservative Party, but the Prime Minister. <laughs> Which is a, right. Which is a, a, a curious, a curious state of affairs, but not not unprecedented. Do you have any views on how that will shake down? I mean, it might well shake down to being uh, Rishi Sunak versus the former Chancellor versus Liz Truss, who was still is the Foreign Secretary. She she's got the support of the the slightly um, unhinged Boris devotees in the form of Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nadine Dorries, who are like something out of a David Williams sketch show. Um, the, how, how do you, how, do you have any views? I mean, I'm, right. this, is a, this is a hard question because, as I say, things might have moved on by the, by the time you answer it. Do you see that there's an obvious person who would be best for the Conservative Party and, which may be a different question, best for the country, who could which could probably use a period of stability? So the, of the eight candidates that I think are extant, yeah. um, the two that you might describe as moderate 
in the in the context of the the Conservative Party. One yeah. is Jeremy Hunt, the former Health Secretary, uh, who's been a, an opponent opponent of Boris, and in fact stood lost, against lost Boris, Boris last yep. time. Yep. Uh, he's quite a significant figure. He's quite serious. He's all the things that that Boris really isn't. Uh, and the other one is Penny Mordaunt, yep. uh, who is a kind of quite lightly qualified. Um, uh, f- minister uh, who has, has a sort of quite centrist positions on things. So those two are sort of relatively centred. The other six are sort of fighting for the sort of, you know, the, the Johnsonian inheritance. Uh, and that is, I think, really, really difficult to say how that will play out. I mm. mean, even in that mm. six, there's a subgroup that has, well, Rishi Sunak, uh, who again was Boris Johnson's Chancellor of the Exchequer, but has you know been an opponent and had opposed him on various sort of tax and spending issues, mm. and it's but it's really hard to tell uh, who was opposing what, so um, or why, or who was who really wanted tax cuts and mm. who didn't, uh, and then you have the others who are uh, I think largely fighting over the same territory. Um, rather depressingly, they're all talking about how they want to cut taxes and they're going to the, step up the culture wars. Yeah. Um, and so you have quite a common theme from all the candidates is the, the, what they call the war on woke. Uh, so the culture wars, which don't really amount to much um, because when you've been in government for 12 years, as the Conservatives have, they can't really talk about their record much. Uh, well, they, well, they can talk about the record, but they can't talk about making radical changes because that would imply changes to the status quo. Know, they are responsible <laughs> yeah. for almost everything that is the case in the British yeah. society, and certainly in England uh, at the moment. So, you know, if you couldn't come in and say, "I will transform England's schools," because they've been transformed yeah. supposedly for the last twelve years, uh, there is one candidate I would keep an eye out, and that's Kimmy Badenoch. Uh, who's supported by Michael Gove. She would probably be unfamiliar uh, to most people, and most people in the UK as well as in New Zealand. She's very young. Uh, she hasn't been in Cabinet. Uh, she hasn't been in Cabinet. Well, she's been, she was Treasury Secretary, I think, which is a Cabinet, but she wasn't the oh, level okay. of a Cabinet okay. Minister yep. of State. So the, t- the technicalities don't really apply. But she's, yeah, she's not held a, a big spending department. Um, she's extremely right-wing. Uh, she's war on woke as well. Isn't she's she? extremely war on woke. She's gone out of her way to, you know, I mean, there are everybody in the Conservative Party at the moment is pretty much signed up to war on woke. Some people are sort of more enthusiastic about it than others. Uh, and she is very enthusiastic about it. Uh, and um, she's supported by Michael Gove, who uh, is about as the establishment of figure, I suppose, the modern mm. parliamentary mm. Conservative Party has. What about on the other side of the House? The Labour Party is still putting itself back together a bit, trying to unify, bring back in some of the people who uh, were either pushed out or deserted. This is just within 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 the, the parliamentary party during the Corbyn years. And things got pretty ugly there. I don't yes. know if that's repaired yet. What? How would you diagnose the state of the Labour Party in, in, in 2022? Um, well, they've imp- you know electorally they've improved. I mean, there's no no question about that. Uh, you just look at the opinion polls, mm. uh, and that's a function of 
partly Boris Johnson's unpopularity, but it's also partly the state of the economy. And the cost of living is the big non-Boris Johnson-related political issue. Which is uh, familiar to, to, yeah, to everyone yeah. in New Zealand. Although I, I suspect uh, that elements of it will be worse in, in the UK because it's, a lot of these issues have been made worse by Brexit. So Brexit has led to a dislocation in the trading arrangements, and that's caused shortages and price mm. rises, mm. and it's hampered exports in a way that so it's on top of everything else, on top of the Ukraine the lorries, COVID. The lorries rolling across the channel yeah. with the, to stop yeah. the shelves in Tesco terms. But it's also the combination of so things like energy prices have gone up by vast amounts because mm. as a result of policies that have been in place for the last... And the decade. war in Ukraine, presumably. And the war in Ukraine, and Ukraine also has an impact, although that's you know something that's still in the pipeline. I mean, the major impact will be you know Brexit and COVID, obviously. But the COVID effect is fading. Um, I mean, it's still being felt from places like China, which, you know, obviously the impact on the manufacturing sector there is, is still pretty immense. But Keir Starmer, former director of public prosecutions, is safe in his role at this point? There, there, isn't, there isn't speculation around his leadership? No. I mean, there was briefly when he was being investigated for breach of the COVID rules. And it, there, was, there was a kind of bizarre situation on the, the day when all the ministers were resigning because of Boris, where the Durham police force announced that they were, yeah. they were going to come to a decision about whether he had, would be fined yeah. for breaching the rules. And he had said, to, to provide a clear contrast to Boris Johnson, he had said if he was fined, he would step down as Labour leader. So we could have had this kind of position where everybody was resigning um, but the Durham police force uh, didn't take that into account and uh, decided to let him off uh, so as a result uh, he's obviously a bit stronger um, I, I think because Labour has, has won a couple of good by-elections recently and because they're doing so well in the opinion polls and having a, having a barrister confronting Boris Johnson every week over legal issues has been quite helpful um, I think he's probably he's pretty safe at the moment but um, we, you know it's a couple of, we've got a new conservative leader the, the Tory party will inevitably have a bounce once they get rid of Boris Johnson there'll be mm. a, a, a bounce because you know there's a lot of drama and people will be tired of that and a new leader gives you know everybody a chance for a fresh start so I think we need to wait a few months to see how, how that shakes out basically the, the leader of the National Party in New Zealand, Christopher Luxon, has come into the role after the National Party here went through some, some tumultuous years, to, to, put it, to put it mildly. And he's provided a modicum, some, well, some real, some real kind of calm. And the, there's some discipline and some, some unity and an end to the leaking and the, the civil war. He was in the UK uh, recently yeah. um, doing a, doing a uh, sort of ticketary. He went to Singapore, he went to Ireland, he went to London, and he went uh, on a, one of the things he was there to do was to look at the education system, which is something that you spend your working days uh, studying. What is, the, what, 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 what is there to learn from the, the education system in the UK at the moment? Um, whether you're, whether you, whatever the side of, whatever side you're coming from in politics, is it? I mean, are there parts of the education system in the UK that I'm not expecting you to be an expert on the education system in New Zealand, but that that are that are 
going sufficiently well that they might be picked up by other Western liberal democracies? Well, I would say just generally, I think it's very difficult to, to make comparisons between education systems. But I would say there are some surprisingly good things about the English education system. Mm. And when I say English, I really do mean English. You mean English. Because yeah. education has devolved. So Scotland runs its own schools and universities. Wales runs its own schools and universities. Mm. England runs its own. So when we talk about education ministers and the Conservative Party, they're all about England because the SNP runs education, the Scottish National Party in Scotland, and uh, there's a Labour-Liberal coalition in, uh, in Wales. So that's not really a coalition. It's a, you know, complex. But uh, so... About, and they are very separate. So schools yeah. in England, uh, one of the things that the previous Labour Party, uh, Labour government, and their for subsequent governments, uh, the coalition and conservative governments, have focused on has been what they call the attainment gap, which is the gap between the lowest achieving mm-hmm. pupils uh, and the highest achieving pupils, and trying to reduce that. Mm-hmm. And they've, uh, there's a political consensus that that's an important thing to to, to look at. Mm-hmm. And so there's a there's a level of dialogue in the UK and England which you don't really hear here so much, um, I think, uh, from what I can tell. And one of the ways they've sought to, to deal with that is they've sought to produce lots of data. So the English school system has a variety of data that's readily accessible which you don't really see in many other countries uh-huh. in the world. Uh-huh. It's, it's unusual. In that regard, and and is this mostly a kind of assessment based, or are there a wider range of metrics? So a lot of uh, there are a lot of metrics, and one of the one of the metrics they they focus on, and they have done especially recently post COVID, is there's a lot of concern about attendance. Uh, so there's research that shows that children who don't attend school, who are, you might call truants, although no one uses that word, uh, who are absent for for whatever reason, the higher the rates of absence the lower their attainment is. Right. So that's in exams in later life. Sure. And there's a pretty direct connection. Now, the trouble is the, the children who are most likely to be absent are also from lower socioeconomic groups or from ethnic minorities that are in lower socioeconomic groups. So uh, there is, it's not just attendance, obviously, but it's one of the factors mm. that we see. And one of the things that in, has been the case for the last decade is it's become harder and harder for uh, children to be absent from school in in the in, in England. Why? Um, because schools have to take it seriously. So head teachers have very little leeway in uh, what they can allow. Hmm. So up until ten years ago, for example, what you would see is middle class families typically asking the heads of their head teachers of their schools, could they take the kids off for a couple of weeks yeah. to go to Florida, to go to Disneyland in the off-season mm-hmm. where it's a lot cheaper? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the heads would have discretion they could allow that, and that's gone. There's no, they have no discretion. You can, you're a, unauthorized absences are not allowed for any reason. And if, you, if a, a child is, uh, is absent for a long enough period of time to concern the school, mm. then they contact the local authority and the local authority will fine the parents. Mm. And you get a fine of uh, between 30 and 60 pounds a day for each, for each day the child is absent. Mm. And if mm. you don't pay the fine, then you go to jail. And that happens. I, we were in a conversation a, a month or two ago, and again, I'm not going to ask you to 
do analysis on the New Zealand system, but you were struck by the lack of ambition or the relatively low numbers for attendance or for truancy to flip it around in New Zealand that the the, the minister announced here recently. I remember looking at attendance stats in New Zealand a couple of years ago and being a bit surprised about how poor they were. And then the government has announced an attendance strategy and that made me look at the the attendance figures in a bit more depth. And it struck me of of, of how many children are absent in New Zealand for, for... substantial periods of time, you know, 10% of, of days, uh, it's far higher rate than most other countries, uh, certainly in the, like OECD countries. Uh, and that's, I think, a real concern because it's a, and we're not, I'm not talking here about the, the COVID period because that has created its own problems with attendance. Yep. Um, because obviously children who've got COVID or whose parents have got COVID or, or immunocompromised. Yeah. yeah, there's and and you know schools have been closed and you know so on. So that's created complications and and working out what the numbers actually are. Mm. But leaving that to one side, New Zealand's had a pretty terrible attendance track record uh, for quite a while, I, I suspect. And uh, it, I don't know what in detail the policies that are being offered will actually tackle it, other than flagging it up as a problem. Mm. Um, one more thing on education. Christopher Luxon, when he was in London, uh, went for a visit to something called Michaela School, and he lavished praise on it and said it was an example of people. Tell us a bit about Michaela School. So Michaela School is a very interesting school. It's very controversial and well-known in, in the UK. Yeah. There's, a, there's documentaries about it if people want to Google it. Uh, so it's a free school, which is uh, free schools are schools that are set up um, under an initiative introduced by Michael Gove. Charter uh, school is a rough, You'd call it rough a charter school norms. here. Yeah. yeah. So they were um, founded, they could be theoretically founded by groups of concerned parents yep. or uh, in this case Michaela School was founded by a head teacher called Catherine Burblesing uh, who was actually born in New Zealand um, uh, and then grew up in Canada um, but she made headlines she gave a, a, a speech to the Conservative Party conference in 2010 she was working in a school in London mm. and she was saying the speech was about how bad schools were uh, she was then fired by her school for doing this right uh, and it made quite a stir. So she then set up the Michaela School, which is free school in Brent, which is a part of London, which is uh, one of the more deprived areas, very high percentage of children on eligible for free school meals, which means they're from very poor backgrounds uh, in, in, in the context of London. Uh, and the school opened, and it's, a, it's quite a controversial school because it has very, very strict... Uh, to the extent where children are not allowed to speak when moving between classrooms during the school day. Mm. Uh, All children have to uh, attend lessons with uh, a pen, a pencil, a rubber, ruler, some other things. And if they don't, they receive a detention. And I've been into classrooms in McKenna. I've seen them. At the start of the lesson, the children all have to hold up a clear plastic uh, pencil case. Mm with all the rubbers and pencils and all the things. And they all have to hold it up. Um, There are no mirrors in the toilets, for example. Makeup is banned. Jewelry is banned. There are no mobile phones. And everything, any any, the smallest thing receives a detention. And it's extremely strict. And Birbal Singh's view is that the kids who go to her school Mm. need that structure. Mm. 
Uh, and when I've spoken to her in detail and said, you know, she, she believes that all schools, would, that all children in all schools would benefit from these. And in fact, I was talking to her about uh, some of uh, schools like Eton, uh, where Boris Johnson went, which is a private school. And she said, yes, yes, I've been to these schools. So they're all terribly lazy and rude. And mm -hmm. her view was that they have these kids from wealthy backgrounds who just do nothing mm -hmm. because they don't need to. And in fact, they would benefit from this. So there has been a movement in some schools like hers, uh, and, and hers is not the only one like this. Um, it's described as what the teachers involved often describe as strict, warm policies. That they're strict. Strict, warm. Strict, warm. So Which sounds like a kind of weird play on tough love, doesn't it? Yeah, that, it kind of that, is. That, that sort yeah. of, it's their boot camp mentality in yeah, a way, isn't yeah. it? We're going to give you a hug, but only after we've been very strict all day. Right. And Michaela carried this to an extreme. Right. Uh, I don't mean that they punish the children extremely because I, I don't think they do. The detentions they receive are relatively minor ones. They're not getting the whip out. No, 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 not at all. But for example, all the corridors in Michaela have, um, in the carpet, there's a dividing line down the carpet. Yeah. So with the children, and it's in a cramped yeah. central city location, when the children are moving between classes, they're only going in one direction on one side of the corridor. I tried that on Oxford Street for a while, I think. I don't know if, I don't know if it lasted. I don't know. Um, is and is it too soon to say, to have any kind of empirical... Well, evidence uh, of whether it worked. They they had they had one set of uh, before COVID came along and they cancelled exams for two years. They had a, yep. a bunch of they had the GCSE, which is this sixteen year old the NCA equivalent, uh, and they were phenomenally good results. I mean, I'm not surprised having seen the school yeah. uh, and seen it in action. Uh, but it, I've seen the Catherine Bibbleswing speak to parents, and she says literally to the parents, this school is very strict. If you don't like it, go somewhere else. And that's her pitch. Yeah. So you you decide to go to the Michaela school. And because of the way school choice works in, in England, people actually have to pick it. Yeah. Uh, and she says, you know, this is how we work. And if you don't like it, go somewhere else. And that means that the only people who do send the children there are already signed up right. to this idea. Right. So it, it works for that reason. So there's a sort of version of a selection bias Arguably oh, absolutely, that, that absolutely. Yeah, if, if, yeah. If, if it was done in some sort of other, you know, basis, then it might not be so successful. Um, thank you, Richard. I'm going to let you go and drive off to Waitoma. That's really, really interesting conversation. And um, I should should repeat that you've done this after arriving at, after midnight, I think, in, in Auckland, and then you've been dragged into the spin-off to chat with us. It's, and a, it's a pleasure. I'm really a huge appreciate fan. It. I'm a huge fan of the spin-off. I think it's fantastic. Oh, well, it's great to see you. Great to have you here. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Jai. Thank you to members who keep us going. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.